0: are you looking for something fun to do with the kids at home that will keep them learning the washington wizards kids club presented by giant has really cool free printable activities available online at dcfamily.com slash coloring books math timetables writing worksheets word searches and so much more up now for you and your family to enjoy keep the kids entertained by checking it out now at dcfamily.com slash
1: What's up, Wizards fans? Welcome to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast presented by the Alibaba Group. I'm your host, Jackson Filio. Off the Bench is one of three podcasts on the Wizards Podcast Network, which also includes Full Court Press, a new podcast hosted by the Wizards Radio Party of Dave Johnson, Glenn Consor, and Brian Alban, and the Wizards Global Podcast hosted by Zach Akuma. Recent episodes on the Wizards Podcast Network include conversations with Wizards head coach Scott Brooks, Head of Mental Health and Performance, Dare Anderson, and Bulls radio broadcaster and former player Bill Wennington on the Last Dance and his time with the '90s Bulls. All podcasts on the Wizards Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts, and will continue to be featured on Wizards Radio twenty four seven and the Wizards app. You can follow Wizards Podcast Network on Twitter at @washwizardspn, and please subscribe, download, rate, and review wherever you listen. On today's episode of Off the Bench, we are joined by Tom McMillan, a former number one overall recruit, Olympian, and Rhodes Scholar who played with the Bullets from 1983 to 1986 before a career in politics. McMillan currently serves as president and CEO of Lead One Association, working with athletic directors at major universities across the country. All right, we are joined now as always by Wizards.com's Chris Gehring and uh, our guest, Tom McMillan. Tom, thanks for taking the time today.
0: Yeah, great to be with
1: you. So I I already ran through a little bit of some of the things that you did uh, in your career. But going back before you started into the NBA, I mean, you were a highly touted recruit. You were an Olympian. Uh, You went to Oxford and played internationally. That's a lot more than most people do Mm -hmm. before their NBA career begins. Take us through that time and, and what that experience was like for you.
0: Well, as you know, I played at the University of Maryland, had a, a great experience there, um, playing for a team that was really always one of the best in the country when I was there. And then when I was at Maryland, I won a Rhodes Scholarship, which was the first ever for the University of Maryland. So I felt an obligation to find a way to do the Rhodes Scholarship uh, and, and at least postpone my NBA career. And so what I worked out was an arrangement where I did that. And I ended up playing in Italy over 50 some games a year, uh, during my one year at Oxford. Uh, when I was at Oxford, I found out that the ABA and NBA were getting ready to merge. So I was there my first year and And my attorney came over and said, you're going to have to give up the second year of your Rhodes Scholarship. I don't want to do that. And somehow I convinced the Rhodes people to let me come back in the summers. Um, So I did go back to the MBA instead of finish my second year. And I finished my Rhodes Scholarship in three straight summers. So as soon as the MBA season was over, I'd fly to Oxford for two months and finished it. So it took me four years to finish at Oxford, but I got it done, so.
1: Do you think joining the league with all those different experiences that are probably at least that combination are unprecedented for somebody coming into the league? Did that change? Uh, you
0: know, Well, Bill Bradley obviously had gone and done his road scholarship, but he actually finished the two years. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, it was I wasn't the first one to do it, but yeah. you know, playing in Italy was a good experience. I mean, basketball was very good there. We had, an arena in Italy, Bologna, where I played, was seated 8,000. We were sold out every game. And there were some very good players over there. Uh, it's not the NBA, obviously, but it was a, it was a good um, place for me to at least keep my skills up. And I was only there one year, so it wasn't like I was away from basketball by any means. But it's, it's uh, you know, I can't even imagine an athlete doing this today because the money's so big and the teams would be so impatient. They wouldn't wait around for for someone like that. If they thought I was going to do that, they wouldn't have drafted me. The good news for me was I was drafted by someone from my hometown of Mansfield, Pennsylvania, who kind of grew up in my hometown. My father was his dentist. So I had deep family relationships with him, and he, and he took a chance on me.
2: We've heard from some Ameri- – we, we had an American player, Jason Randall, on our team on the Wizards last year who had played in Spain and had – um, you know, played professionally. He had played in, in professionally in the states before as well. But as a young player that goes over there and gets to play, you know, we, amongst amongst grown adults, even if it's not the NBA, how how helpful was that for you when when you finally did come back over? We've heard from guys like Tomas Sadoransky that um, a lot of players that grow up in Europe, play professionally as teenagers, and then come here, they feel pretty prepared. Obviously, the NBA is always going to be a step up, but they feel uniquely prepared, I guess I would say, for that. Did you feel that when you finally came back over and played?
0: I think that the Italian game has gotten better over the years. I was, It was pretty good. We had an American coach, by the way, Dan Peterson, who's kind of an icon in Italy, but he, he came from America. So I was still very much part of the American influence. The Italian players at that time were very good, they were very systematic. They were structured. Uh, they weren't like American players who were more freewheeling, but as time gone, went on, they became, you know, obviously the great talents that we see in the NBA. They're, they're very, you know, they're assets for any team. They play as a team. You know, that's why San Antonio has done so well with these players because they play as a team, they pass, they work hard, you know, great attitudes. And, um, so that experience was a good one because they are grown up and you learn to travel and and it's not like traveling in the NBA where you have planes and so forth. You're on buses and you don't stay in the best hotels. But And the arenas can sometimes be cold and unforgiving. But all in all, it was a pretty interesting experience. For me, it was very difficult because I was flying all night twice a week to get back to Oxford school. So I would finish a game. I would travel all night to get back to Oxford for the next morning. And then I would do it again. I did that twice a week. So I wasn't sleeping two nights a week. And yet I, I was under tremendous pressure to play basketball in Italy. We played 50-some games. They expected a lot out of me. And Oxford expected a lot of me. You know, When you go to school at the University of Maryland, it's kind of integrated. They realize your school and basketball are kind of connected. There they were separated by a continent. And they didn't care about the either either of the other ones. So the, Italy didn't care about Oxford. Oxford didn't care about Italy. So it was a very very difficult experience.
1: So fast forwarding a little bit, you obviously then make it to the NBA. You were a top ten pick, um, and you played for a handful of teams. But let's hone in on a little bit of your time with the Bullets. What do you remember most from that period of your career?
0: Well, how really how I got there it was an interesting story. Um, I was playing for Ted Turner, I was, you know, playing well, we were we are a great team, one of the best teams Atlanta ever had. And uh, we lost to the Bullets in that Eastern Finals. And uh, as you recall, it was a great, great series when they went on to win the, in, in the World Championship against Seattle. But uh, it was uh, 1983 and I had gone to Ted and I said, Ted, you know, I love playing for Atlanta, Ted Turner, the owner. I said, but I really want you to trade me to Washington so I could run for Congress back there. I bought a house in Annapolis, near Annapolis. And I said, well, you know, I would like to go back, play a couple of years, and then run for Congress. And I never thought he would, you know, take it seriously. But that summer in 83, I get a phone call uh, and I'm traded to the Bullets. And uh, ironically, I was traded for Randy Whitman, who went, went on to coach the Bullets. The oh, wow. And uh, so, in a way, I was the the first kind of political trade in college sports. He traded me to Washington so I could run for Congress, and then uh, I ended up playing three years for the Wizards, and then I announced for Congress the beginning of my third year. So I uh, I was really a um, candidate for Congress that whole season. So,
1: so while I played. Based on some very loose internet research here, I I found that you appear to be the tallest congressman of all time. Do you think? Yeah, that's correct. How long do you think that record stands? Is that one untouchable?
0: No, actually, there was a senator, Luther Strange, that was from Alabama. This year it was six He was a former basketball player, but you no, know, these records these records are meant to be broken. So <laughs> someone will be some seven, some seven footer will get elected to Congress. I'm sure. So.
2: And and in general, I mean the the career path from being a Rhodes Scholar, playing in the NBA, and then being in the United States Congress. I mean, what what inspired you to take that path? And you know, what's the in general the the most rewarding part about getting to do something like that after a long athletic career that you know you grow up people grow up dreaming of playing in the NBA, but then to get to be Elected to Congress is also a really, really special thing that uh, you know people don't get to do uh, very often. Obviously,
0: well, I was campaigning my whole last season, and I had a great uh, last year with the Wizards. I was NBA Player of the Week, and one week I averaged like 35 points a game when some of our players were uh, hurt, and so I was playing actually very well for my last year in the NBA. And here I'm running for Congress of all things, and I bought 20 season tickets that year to the Bullets, and I would invite people out to the games. And then they uh, they would go upstairs to a little room afterwards and I would grab one of the players on the floor, Michael Jordan or Larry Bird. I say, just come on upstairs and say hello to a couple of these guys. They're, they're big leaders in my district. And they all came up and they helped me a lot. And then I would do fundraisers on the road and all that. So I was very active. I had a full campaign going on. I left the NBA in May after we lost in the, uh, in the playoffs and here I, my primary was in May. I won my primary and then the elections in November. I mean, I was campaigning 15 hours a day as soon as the NBA season was over. And then the election came, I barely won. I won, I won by 424 votes, it was the closest race in the country. So, you know, uh, that was a extremely difficult period of time. Uh, you know, just to think that I didn't even think about losing. I never even thought about that. I was so busy to even think about it. And then all of a sudden I win. It's not decided until weeks after until all the uh, absentee ballots come in. But I won, even though I was, it looked like I was going to lose on election night, uh, what happened was all the block precincts in Prince George's County came in. And I attribute a lot of that to the fact that I was a bullet played in Prince George's County. People felt they knew me, and Prince George's County put me over the top, and even though Dan Rather said at 10 o'clock that night I was going to lose, I ended up winning, but it wasn't until a couple of weeks later, and being thrust into Congress, and I, it was an interesting class. I was in the class of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Kennedy and Jim Bunning and some really pretty big stars. It was interesting to go to Congress, serve, and and, and be part of that, but I literally had not a single step, a single minute to rest since I left the
1: NBA. So, That's so interesting. And you mentioned Michael Jordan, who's obviously been the center but of-
0: You asked me one question. I was going to say why I did it that way. I did it that way because I was on the Knicks with Bill Bradley the year he retired. And everybody knew Bill wanted to run for office. But he actually left the Knicks for a year and then ran in New Jersey in a primary. And I helped him. I raised money for him. So when I was getting around to do it, Bill was in the Senate. I went to see Bill. I said, Bill, do you think that I should play this last year? Or should I just retire and, you know, campaign for office? He said, Tom, you better play. He said, first of all, you make the money, which wasn't like it is today, but it was still a really good paycheck. And the second thing is that people are going to get to know you even better. So I followed his advice. So you asked me why I did it that way. I felt that using the opportunity of taking your basketball uh, you know notoriety or whatever and running for Congress made sense at the end, it actually hurt me because my opponent ran ads against me, showing me that I was just a basketball player and and that kind of hurt me at the end, but it got me it got me to where I could be the candidate, at least have a chance to win. so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your point.: Oh no, no,
1: that's super interesting. i'm glad you. Went a little deeper on that, but I was going to say you had mentioned Jordan a little bit earlier. who's obviously been the center of a lot of conversation over the last couple of weeks. We actually had Bill Wennington on uh, last week on another one of our, our podcasts, you crossed over a little bit with Jordan in you know, some of his younger years. What do you remember most about early Jordan? Have you been following some of the last dance at all? What was that like for you? Well, of
0: course. And, you know, I mean, Michael Jordan, evolved into you know one of the greatest basketball players if not the greatest of all time but when he was in the nba in i think 84 85 he wasn't the michael jordan that you think of today he was a very good player but it wasn't like wow that's michael jordan at the same time you know larry bird was coming into the nba or right around then and larry bird was someone right out of the box You know, I I, I remember walking in the Boston Garden and seeing him shoot for the first time his first first game against us as a rookie. I didn't know much about him, but he went out and scored 40 points against us. He was just incredible out of the box in the NBA. Michael was not. Michael took a while to adjust, but uh, obviously he evolved into one of the greatest players of all time.
1: Let's... Talk a little bit about some of the stuff you're doing now. You work with mm-hmm. Lead One, working with athletic directors across the country. Um, can you go a little deeper on that and, and tell us? Some yeah, of you, I mean, what it's like.
0: We represent the 130 largest college athletic programs in the country. So it's about it's 130 schools of the FBS, and it's about nine billion dollars of revenue. Believe it or not, we're about the size of the NBA. Our 130 schools, of their athletic programs in total about the size of the NBA. And so, I mean, it's a very, very, you know, you think about these schools, Notre Dame, Stanford, Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama, they're they're iconic schools. And so we work with all the schools on all the issues that they face. Right now, obviously the the challenge of COVID nineteen is just monumental, whether they're gonna have football. Uh, how they're going to have football, whether kids come back to school in the fall. And so these are some really, really tough and difficult times.
2: What are what are some of the things that, I mean, I know that obviously all these discussions are so much up in the air, but I mean, what are some of the things that the feedback on like how, on how they're hoping to get through this? Is it is it much like the NBA and all these sports leagues where you're really just kind of, where you're just kind of waiting right now, and you're kind of trying to gather more information. I I would imagine that the schools and athletic programs are kind of in the same boat.
0: Well, they are, and they're not. And I'll tell you one big difference because I I've, I've communicated with Adam Silver and some of the and some of our commissioners and Jim Patara, ESPN. The NBA can play without fans, and they can pretty much isolate their players and play. And that can happen sooner rather than later. All they have to do is be able to test their players, make sure they're safe going on the floor. Where college sports gets more difficult is that it's unlikely that college sports will resume until classes resume on your campuses. I mean, they don't want these kids to be gladiators out playing just for a television product. They want them to be part of the educational system. So that's where it gets difficult. And until you have testing, that can test really a whole campus before they come to campus as well as the football team. You know, it's harder to, to restart football. That's why they're talking about a spring football league or whatever, because the question is, well, we'll have the testing regimens in place by the fall. So while the NBA, I'm sure the NBA and the NFL product will be earlier than colleges because they don't don't have have, have that live live classes.
1: classes. Yeah, well, we'll get you out of here on that one, Tom. This has been really cool. I mean, your story is fantastic, all the different places that you've been and experiences that you've had, and, uh, you know, obviously it ties back in with the Bullets. But we thank you so much for taking the time to share a little bit of it. We hope you and your family are doing well and staying healthy and, and all that in, in these, these crazy times. But thank you again. This was great. Likewise.
2: Stay healthy,
0: everybody. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks
2: so much.